welcome to Straight Talk Live. I am one of the co-hosts, Rick Snyder, um, CEO of Invisible Edge and head of Culture at Refound, author of Decisive Intuition, and excited about our show today. I first want to introduce our my amazing co-host, Af Maholtra. Af, take it away. Thank you, Rick. Uh, good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Delighted to be um, with you again on one of these uh, fantastic shows. Um, I'm the co-founder of Growth Enabler, of course, the co-creator of Straight Live. This is um, this is one of the most incredible pathways and journeys we've been on together, Rick and I, and it's been so stimulating intellectually and emotionally and spiritually. And so as we talk about these important aspects of our lives, um, uh, we have a guest who we're honored to have back on our show, a real, a real um, hero for many people and a star and just beautifully um, articulates some of the most painful, sometimes the most scary um, issues and things that we deal with. And um, we, he, was, he's, you know, he was so kind and generous to come on our show again. So uh, Rick, I'm going to pass it on to you to introduce our guest. And as I always say, let's crack on because uh, this is a very important topic. So let's, let's go with it. It sure is. And we're going to be tackling this topic today around fear. And how do you actually overcome fear to take action and mobilize from that place of being frozen or procrastinating or whatever uh, way that fear might move through you or live through you? And we all know that we've all been experiencing a lot of different kinds of emotions and been tested a lot with the circumstances of the day and just the state of the world and really being pushed up against our own edges around dealing with difficult emotions and difficult uh, feelings. So we have one of our, um, uh, for actually our very first return guest. So I want to first name that Dr. Demartini. We are honored to have you back. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And for those of you who didn't see one of the earlier episodes with Dr. Demartini, please see that right after this. And just for those who might not know about you from our audience today, would you mind just sharing a few words about your background? <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I guess the best thing to describe me is simply an educator. I've been involved in education next month will be the 48 years. So I'll be doing it a bit. And um, I just love researching, writing, traveling, and teaching. Now I'm traveling on Zoom, though, because I'm in, uh, in a hotel most of the time. But I, I just am an educator. I love researching anything to do with maximizing human awareness and potential and the evolution of human consciousness has been my focus for all these years. So let's explore that, uh, maximizing human potential. One of the kryptonites of most of humankind seems to be fear. Uh, it's one of the most challenging uh, experiences that we have that can often stop us from taking action that we are called to take. Um, so can you just share, you, you have a very unique perspective on fear and a different way of relating to it than most people that I've heard before. Could you share a little bit about how, how do you make sense of fear? How do you define it? Um, how do you relate to it in your perspective? Okay. Um, I'm going to start with an analogy. And um, so I hope everybody can maybe, maybe you got a pencil and pen to take some notes. It might be, <laughs> might be intriguing. Uh, I want you to imagine this being a magnet. It's not, it's a little stick, but I want you to imagine being a positive pole and a negative pole of a magnet. And I want you to imagine that this positive negative pole uh, if I was to divide it in half and try to get the positive pole away from the negative pole, I would end up with two magnets, one positive and negative, one positive negative. And if I slivered those again into four parts, the same thing, and eight parts. In fact, if I cut it into um, innumerable parts, as long as there's an atom left in each of those parts, the nuclei and electrons of the atom have spin, intrinsic spin, and they have magnetism. So that's just inherent within the system. So magnetism is, is actually, this looks like it's got a positive negative pole, but in, in real truth, it's neither. Now, what's interesting is it's the flow of electron movement in there that gives this idea of magnetism. Now, life is very similar to that. We try to separate and isolate the inseparables. Divide the indivisibles, name the ineffables, polarize the unpolarizables, divide those. And um, we have events in our life that we do that to. 
each of us have a unique set of priorities or values in our life that we filter our reality to. And anything that supports our values, we typically label something positive. And anything that challenges values, we typically label negative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so this awakens, if we do that, we try to separate the inseparables. And when we see things that support our values, we can be attracted to it. When things challenge values, we can be repelled to it. So we can have an impulse toward or an instinct away. Mm. One towards prey, one towards away from predator. And our amygdala, our subcortical area of the brain, reacts this way. And most of us live in that little reactive mind. And when we get infatuated with somebody, it represents prey. When we resent somebody, it represents predator. It activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is rest and digest, and the sympathetic nervous system, which is fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And so when we subjectively bias something as a survival mechanism to search for food or to be aware of our predator, we go into this survival mode. And when we infatuate with something and we're conscious of the upside and unconscious of the downside in order to be attracted to it, or we resent something, we're conscious of the downside and unconscious of the upside to be repelled from it. We have to do that with our mind. It's an inherent neutral event. The animal is just a, a, an animal, but we've made it into something by our, by our perceptions. Now, if we infatuate something and split our consciousness, full consciousness of seeing both sides of the magnet into these polarized perspectives and polarize it, we automatically now have a philia for that which is the animal that's prey and a phobia against the way that's predator mm -hmm. as a survival mechanism for our fear of death. Mm. We go extinct or die. Mm. So the, the moral hypocrisies that we generate because of our subjective bias are innumerable. And we trap ourselves in these boundaries of thinking mm. by artificially subjectively biasing with false positives and false negatives. Hmm. Now, because we have events in our life that we think are terrible, that a day, a week, a month, a year, or five years later, we look back and go, thank God that occurred. Hmm. And we have these events that we think are terrific, buying a new house, for instance, some women have. Hmm. And then a day, a week, a month, a year, five years later, they go, friggin' house, <laughs> friggin' car or something. So we get attached. These are the two Buddhist attachments, the things we seek and avoid. They really, anything we infatuate occupies space and time in our mind and runs us. Anything we resent occupies space and time in our mind and runs us. And if they're extreme, we can't even sleep at night. Mm -hmm. Now, the seeking is called philia. The avoidance is called phobia. Mm -hmm. And they're inseparable, just like the two magnet parts. So if you infatuate something, the greater the infatuation, the more you fear their loss. So you get jealousy, insecurities. If somehow they reject you or somebody comes along, it might be a better catch for them. You now have anxiety, you have fear. Your fear is a result of your addiction to the fantasy. The philia is another name for a fantasy. Infatuation, philia, fantasy, really kind of synonyms. And phobia and the resentment and the predator, they're really synonyms. So we have a philia to escape the, 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 the predator and we have a phobia if the, if the prey gets away. Mm. So they're inseparable. Mm. You can't have a predator without the fear of it coming near you and the fantasy of it going away. So you have the philia of it walking away and the phobia of it coming near. And you have the philia of getting near the prey and the phobia of it going away. Mm -hmm. So these are inseparable. And you can never separate them. The more you infatuate, the more you fear its loss. The more you resent, the more you fear its gain. So the master lives in a world of transformation, transcending these polarities. The masses live in the illusion of gain and loss. They live in this polarity, isolated polarity. An animal in the wild, in order to survive, will automatically create false positives on the prey in order to accelerate adrenaline, in order to run after it and catch it. So it has to accentuate that and create a false positive on the positives and a false negative on the negative until to get the adrenaline going enough to catch it. Mm -hmm. And we have to do the same thing for the predator to avoid it. So we automatically in our amygdala are designed to skew these 
and distort these and generalize these away from the actual truth that they're neither. Because if you got prey without predator, you'd be gluttonous and fat and no fitness. And if you had predator without prey, you'd be emaciated and starved and without fitness. You must have both sides of the magnet in order to maximize your potential. That's why growth is maximized at the border of support and challenge, mm -hmm. positive and negative. Mm -hmm. Order and chaos, sometimes called. At the edge of chaos, they call it. In chaos there. Now, with that stated, every time we have in our mind a perception that's polarized, we divide our consciousness, full consciousness, into conscious and unconscious acts. Because we're conscious of the negatives without the positives, we're conscious of the positives without the negatives. Mm -hmm. And we're dividing ourselves up. And all divisions of the conscious and unconscious are stored electronically, neuroassociative complexes, and molecularly in the ratios of transmitters in the subconscious mind. The subconscious mind stores all conscious, unconscious splits of the past. Mm. And when they're active in the actual perceptual world, it's a conscious and unconscious experience. But we store those subconscious and the greater the subconscious stored polarities, the more vulnerable we are to an animal reaction. But the moment we actually go into the moment of the perception that we think is terrible and find the terrific in it. And every time we go into the moment we think is terrific and find the terrible in it and level the playing field and have objectivity, which is neutral minded, not subject to bias, but objectivity, which is neutral minded, unbiased, unopinionated, just transcendent awareness, equanimity, equal minded. The subconscious mind is transcended by the superconscious mind. And the superconscious mind knows that you can't get one event without the other. They're inseparable. And our intuition is constantly trying to wake us to that. But our impulses and instincts mostly rule us because our subconscious mind has been more trained because of moral constraints and hypocrisies in our society about what there's good and bad. I said before, I think on the show, that if I walk up to somebody and I said, you're always nice, you're never mean, mm -hmm. you go, no, you're always mean, you're never nice, no. Mm -hmm. You intuitively have a psychostat, a, a neutralizing habituation that dampens those polarities into the reality is that I'm, I'm one of those at different times. I'm playing both sides. In fact, I can't be labeled one or the other because I'm both. To label me as a nice person or a mean person is a persona, but not my true being. My true being is I, when I'm supported, I'm nice. When I'm challenged, I mean, I'm a human being with both sides. So if we have an objective view on life about people, ourselves, and the world around us, and are willing to train our minds to see both sides of things, mm -hmm. we transcend the life of phileas and phobias. And you cannot have phobias without phileas. So people are not, they think that they got to get rid of their phobias. Right. But as long as they're addicted to philias, they live with them. Well, let me ask you a quick question about this, Dr. Demartini, around do you make a distinction between when fear might be a very wise alarm signal that your system is getting about something that's not safe versus the kind of fear that's more of like a distortion of your mindset? Do you make a distinction between those at all? It's a gradation because it's elusive. They're hallucinatory. Mm -hmm. Uh this is going to shock you, but we live in a very uh, reflective world, a universal world. Mm -hmm. And I've been studying chaos and, and randomness for 48 years almost. And I'm, I'm at the state where I question the wisdom of that entropic belief system. I think it's an incomplete belief system that's being promulgated. So let me elaborate. As long as we're addicted to protection, we attract violence. I've been teaching, as long as we're addicted to any pole of the magnet, the more we seek that pole, the more we attract the opposite pole. I'll use the analogy of the prey and predator again. Mm. If you're addicted to food and you want more gluttony, you gain weight and you have more calories per bite, more fat per bite, mm. and therefore you increase the probability of predator seeking you because you can't run fast and you have the most calories 
So they get the most bang for the buck. Mm. So the more you get prey without predator, the higher the probability of attracting predator to eat you. So the more you want support, the more you attract challenge. The more you want ease, the more you attract difficulty. The more you want pleasure hedonistically, the more you attract chaos. The more you want to control everything, the more you attract out of control events. This is a law of heuristic escalation that's been proven in psychology, sociology. So the searching for one-sided world is the fantasy that people live in. And we're taught ignorantly. Mm -hmm. It doesn't exist. It never has existed except in the minds of elusive individuals that are vulnerable enough to be governed and controlled by people promoting it as a way of disempowering people. And I could go off on that tangent sociologically. Mm. Now, let's just, let's just play with this for a second. I, I, in, the, in the program I teach the Breakthrough Experience, I have people that think they have random events until I ask them a new set of questions and realize that their, their role in this, this uh, transcendent, a causal uh, experience. So as long as they are searching for something, mm -hmm. the other side of the magnet is always present. Mm. Jung called it the shadow. Right. But, but I don't think that's a really quality term because the shadow implies a negative kind and the other one is a light side. Mm -hmm. And those are delusive. Because the reality is inside the shadow is a great blessing. Let me give you an example. Imagine if you got prey without predator, you would just get gluttonous and fat. You wouldn't actually maximize your potential. You need the predator to keep you fit. You need the challenge to keep you fit. And supported kids become juvenile dependents. And challenged kids become precocity independent. You put the two together, you get maximum growth. So now... This is a very important component right here. here. Here we go down the rabbit hole now. You have a hierarchy of values, a set of priorities in your life. Whenever you live by the highest priority and really know who you are, because your identity revolves around that highest value at that time, that's where you're most transcendent, most objective. If you live your life by highest priority, you have the highest probability of being objective, neutral. If you live by lower values because you're comparing yourself to other people instead of comparing your actions to your own highest values and subordinating to people, you'll inject other people's values and go into lower values to survive. We've all been infatuated with people and done weird stuff that we don't normally do to be with them for fear of loss of them. Mm -hmm. The moment we go into lower values, we activate our amygdala. The blood glucose and oxygen goes to the amygdala. The moment we live by our highest values, we go into the executive center where we are able to have objectivity. So anytime we're not in the objective center and setting objectives for our life, we go into the amygdala, which then looks to avoid pain, seek pleasure, avoid predator, seek prey, avoid challenge, seek you know, ease. And we set up hedonistic fantasies. And most people, most, 99% of the time, I'm, I'm, I'm being generous there, <laughs> 99% of the time, don't know the difference between an objective and a fantasy. It's called a goal, but they're actually setting a fantasy. They're not setting a real objective. An objective is something that you've got meditated on the so-called evils, thought of all the downsides. Do not have just an optimistic side, but have optimism and pessimism woven together in a perfect balance. You thought of everything that could go wrong. You premeditated on it. You prepared for it. You mitigated the risk. And now you're prepared. And as a result of thinking of the downside, you're not infatuated with it because you now know the accountabilities and you brought your accounting sheet into balance and you set a real objective. And now you're prepared for whatever happens and you don't have to react, you're proact. Mm -hmm. And you have the highest probability of achieving an objective. But what most people do is they go after an impulse, immediate gratifying, consumable impulse, hedonistically looking for a positive pole without a negative pole don't want to look at those negative things don't want to do it want to be remain ignorant of those negative things search for that positive pole this positive outcome i want to buy a house it's going to be all happy i'll be happy i want to do this mm -hmm. completely blind of all the taxes the cost the settling fees the tax the insurance the the maintenance the you know they're not aware of those downsides they don't want to look at those downsides they just want to look at oh i got this price i got it i saved a bit on it 
they don't realize that you're paying three or four times the amount for the mortgage over the period of time, taxation, something else. It's actually a sinkhole, but they don't see that. Mm-hmm. And they buy this thing out of impulse, blind to the downside, and then wonder why they live with anxiety and fear. Right. Right. But right. please note this. Fear is your friend. Fear is letting you know you're pursuing fantasy. Mm-hmm. You only have fear, only have fear when you're infatuated with a fantasy. Now, this is a, this is a real good one. Watch <laughs> this. Your fear of death, which is what is the, you were trying to ask the question, is there really a distinction between the fear of death and just distortions? Mm-hmm. I've worked with the fear of death on 3,580 clients now. They've had deaths mm-hmm. in their families. Mm-hmm. And I'm absolutely certain. And I, I get challenged in this all the time. In fact, I'm, I've written a published book on it, a book on it that seven publishers are, are rejecting it because they can't, they don't believe it's possible, but I'm certain uh-huh. it is. Uh-huh. You only have the fear of death because you're infatuated with who you are. You're infatuated uh-huh. with an attachment because the moment you are depressed or feeling shamed, you don't have the fear of death. You have the fear of life continuing and you contemplate your death. That's a darn good point, actually. And the moment you're infatuated with yourself or infatuated with a fantasy that you plan on doing or infatuated with an individual that you fear the loss of, these culminate in what is called the fear of death. Hmm. Your soul, which is a state of unconditional love, which is not polarized, but is actually objective, has no fear of death. It's the immortal core of your own essence of being. Hmm. It's only in the existential world, not the essential self, but the existential world where we polarize things with self and different, similars and different judgment ratios that we actually have the fear of death. And therefore we set up moralities to protect us from our fear of death. And the moment we search for a one-sided system, we increase the probability of attracting what we fear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So an individual who's centered doesn't have a fear of the predator because they don't have an infatuation with the prey. Hmm. They know the way things are. They're chopping wood and carrying water, as the Buddha says. So they are transcendent to those illusions that most of us are trapped in. So fear is your friend. It's letting you know that you're pursuing something from your hedonistic component, looking for something that you think is going to give you more pleasure than pain, and your anxiety and fear is surfacing and compounding to awaken you, to mitigate the risks that are involved inherently that you're overlooking, to make sure you set real objectives to accomplish something that's deeply meaningful, the mean Mm -hmm. that you're intuitively led to that transcends those attachments. And that's very, very powerful. And so fear, I don't have a fear of fear. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm grateful for my fears. It lets me know that I have refinement in my objective Mm -hmm. and I'm attached to some fantasy or I'm attached with my pride. Mm-hmm. You only have the fear of losing your pride. You only have a fear of losing your infatuations. You only have a fear of losing those things. You don't have a fear of losing things that are painful. Mm-hmm. You don't have a fear of losing the things you're ashamed of. When, when somebody dies mm-hmm. and you're grieving the loss of them, you don't grieve the loss of the things you resented. You only fear at the grieving the loss of the things you were infatuated with. Right. I prove that every week in my Breakthrough Experience program, every week I've proven that people are just going, oh, I never thought about that. Right. So we own, grief is an animal behavior because of the hedonistic pursuit of the amygdala that's running us. And we as human beings have the capacity to transcend our animal nature. Mm-hmm. And there's a training on that and it's, and it's trainable. It's duplicatable. It's a science. So fear is our friend. And most people, if they're having anxieties and fears, which are comp- anxiety is nothing but compounded fears by new associations subjectively added to the original fear. Mm. And once we have those fears, if we understand how to tease those out down to their individual experiences, and then we go in there and ask questions that break the fantasy, we find the downsides of the fantasy, the way we fantasize it would be, what's the downsides, and the benefits of this was to happen, and we meditate on the evils, as the Stoics said, and all of a sudden we balance it. Both the phobia and the philia are neutralized, and we embrace the magnet as, as a whole. It's neither positive nor negative, in fact. Mm-hmm. And life is neither positive nor negative. Mm-hmm. So it transcends it. 
Kohlberg said that there were stages of moral development. The bottom of the stages of moral development is avoid pain, seek pleasure, avoid punishment, seek reward. And all of those are basically inculcated from mothers, fathers, preachers, teachers, conventions, traditions, mores of society that is initiated by whoever has the power and the projection of their values onto society. Mm. They're not universal, they're humanistic. Dr. Martini, I just want to interject for a moment. There's a very basic question, but an important one. When, when you think about the manifestations of fear, the early warning signs or the symptoms of fear, um, human beings have a habit of covering up fear or not accepting that we, we are fearful of something. Only some of us can say, I'm scared or I fear a death or I fear that I'm not going to be able to pay my bills next month or whatever it may be. What, what do you believe for the audience that's listening? What are those symptoms? What, what are the kind of cover-ups that you see are masking what we're discussing here, true fear? Well, because we're living in a society that promotes uh, unobtainables, as the Buddha says, the desire for that which is un unobtainable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. That's the passions. Mm -hmm. And they occur in all seven areas of life. So knowledge that's pleasurable and supportive of your objective, you, you fear the loss of that. You start losing your mind, you feel the loss of that. Mm. You fear of gaining, of knowing information you don't want to hear. In business, you feel the loss of client, but you, and, and fear the bills. In money, you, you, you fear the loss of making money and the fear of the gain of bills. Again, all seven areas of life that we can categorize our, our areas of life into have these phobias and phillies, but they're all in the brain, only registered as, as the perception of loss of that which you seek and the perception of gain of that which you're trying to avoid. All of those outside facades of form boil down to just simply that which supports or challenges what you value. And those values are based on previous judgments that you haven't transcended. And I could go off on a tangent on that. Now, no, when somebody is facing fear, it's not real. It's not real. It's just an assumption that you're about it. And I want to make sure I go on record on this. Yeah. Nobody has fear of the unknown. You only have fear of the, what's conjured in your mind at that moment. Mm, mm. There's no fear of the unknown. I've never seen it. I've been doing this a long time. I've never seen fear of the unknown. I have fear. People say, I have fear of the unknown. No, you don't. You have fear of what you just conjured in your mind about mm. what's about to happen. Yeah. Interesting. Correct. Fear is an assumption that you're about to experience mm. in the future more drawbacks and benefits. That's and philia is an assumption you're about to experience in the future more benefits and drawbacks. And they're both elusive because you've stored in your subconscious mind conscious and unconscious splits that you've now labeled as true. And these delusions you're carrying forward and they're running your life. Because anything that you haven't loved and brought into balance is going to keep running your life until you love it. Yeah. Just want to make sure I get that. So you're saying there's not really such a thing as fear of the unknown. It's really a fear of whatever you're projecting onto the unknown. Whatever your imagination is putting out there, yeah. that's really what you're quote unquote afraid of. Fear is an assumption that you're about to experience in the future through your senses or imagination, more drawbacks and benefits, more losses and gains, more negatives and positives to that which supports or challenges your, your values. So you're, you're the fear of loss of that which supports it or the fear of gain of that which challenges it. You, you can take any fear. I can take any fear you could ever list on anybody on this, on this show. And I guarantee it boils down to that. Hmm. And there's only two forms, only two. The perception of loss of that which you seek, perception of gain of that which you're trying to avoid. Think about it. Any name of fear, and you'll you'll see it. You're perceiving you're going to lose something you're seeking, or you're going to gain something you don't want. So these are all illusions that have been compounded by a continual assumption that you can get a one-sided world. Mm -hmm. the, the the number one initiator of fear is the fantasy that's being promoted on the society. Opium of the masses. Mm. That opium of the masses, if, if as long as we teach people that they can get pleasure without pain, we're going to have fear. And when you it's talk about, and, and when you talk about being censored, because of course, through the, the dialogue right now, what's playing on our minds is, well, you're, you're, you're helping us to detach from fear. You're helping us to understand that it's an illusion that we, it's a, almost a friend sometimes because it's making you feel like you're alive and you're balancing off in some way and, and you're starting to accept that, well, I have fear. When you talk about being centered, 
that's when almost the the brain starts working again, thinking, well, wh well what does that mean? Uh, and you're conjuring up something else in your mind. You think it's a long, there's a long journey of spirituality. I've got to go through and meditate for 10,000 hours to get to being censored. So what does being censored mean? How can one achieve it? Well, I, I, I use my method that I've developed to try to make it reproducible. <clears throat> right. But there's been many traditions and tools throughout the years. And they all have some place. But I just wanted to make it reproducible and, and a science out of it. A neuroscience. So let's say that uh, you meet somebody and you're infatuated with them and you think there's pleasure. And now you think, oh my God, you start creating dopamine and serotonin. Mm. I, I met a lady the other day that I, I was consulting with and uh, she met this guy and he was a wealthy guy, relatively decent looking and started ticking off a lot of boxes. Mm. And we create a search image and an anti-search image throughout our life of relationships. Everything that's been pleasurable, we store in a search image. Anything that's painful, we store in an anti-search image. And whenever we meet somebody, we compare them to this search image, anti-search image. We call that the lovability quotient. I sometimes use a different term, but that's the point. <laughs> now, uh, she was infatuated with him. He ticked off a lot of boxes at first. And she was absolutely blind to the downsides. Absolutely blind to the downsides. Highly infatuated. Started thinking, oh, I want to have babies with this one. <laughs> yeah. You know, I want the, the, the picket fence in the house. And I, want, I mean, it's just, she started conjuring up serotonin rushes and fantasies and got into a, an elation mode and was definitely blind. Blind or a downside. A week later, there was a, a couple minor little peccadillos that surfaced. Like he, he said some things to her that she didn't like and he eats differently and he takes forever in the bathroom and the little thing started adding up. Mm. Three weeks later, it's now from all positive ticks off of boxes to now about 70%. And now about five weeks in, six weeks maybe, um, she's starting to question the relationship. Thinking maybe he was deceptive mm. and he's a narcissist. Right. And maybe, you know, they, they start putting labels because it's now not matching the fantasy that they conjured in their mind. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, initially, uh, you would fear the loss of him because you're highly infatuated. You, you can't, you, you'd be jealous if a woman came by. You'd be angry if he looked at somebody else. You'd be reactive. And these, that's because not anything to do with them. It's all about your perception of them. And you have control over that perception. Mm -hmm. But now, slowly but surely, Hedonic adaptation and habituation is dampening the fantasy and it's designed to for stability. We have intuitive feedback systems and, and orientation reflexes and things that, that we, we have to dampen and habituate and desensitize, you might say. And so in the process of doing that, she's now getting closer to a balanced state, but she's not getting the high and the dopamine. So she's not wanting sex as much. So now she's turning off sexually because we only have a sexual response. This is going to really startle people. Our sexual response is highly activated to make sure that we procreate the blind spots so we can say later when the kids do grow up, you're just like your father. So we, <laughs> we, we epigenetically code the children with methyl tags and, and acetyl tags to automatically make sure their behavior activates the behavior that we were blinded to while we were infatuated to create that procreation. It's really quite interesting. So we're, we're taught how to love both sides. The, the actual procreation process and the family dynamic is to teach people to be authentic, but people don't get that, hmm. how to see both sides of things. Because as long as you're infatuated with somebody and you minimize yourself to them, you're not being you. As long as you're resentful to somebody and exaggerating yourself to them, you're not you. You're only you when you actually level the playing field and have reflective awareness and love the individual. And so that's what everything is trying to teach us to do, to be authentic and to be appreciative and love people. So as long as we are doing that with that infatuation, she was fearing the loss of him. But once she reached neutrality, does she have the fear of loss of him? No. A completely neutral mind is a resilient, adaptable, not attached, transcendent, and is able to allow the person to come and go without fear. Because if you're infatuated, you fear they're, if they go somewhere, where, where are you going? Mm. When are you coming back? Mm. 
And if you're resentful to somebody, you know, take your time, get out of here. You actually have a fear of the man having an affair with another woman when you're infatuated. When you resent him, you actually try to get another woman to have an affair with your man to get rid of him. And you celebrate him gone off. And you go, well, now she has to deal with it. So these are all the ratios of perception that lead to these attachments. Mm. They create these phileas and phobias. And they're programmed in our society by institutions, the opium of the masses, that you're supposed to have health without disease, happiness without sadness, harmony without disharmony, and heaven without hell. And that's absolutely delusional. Mm -hmm. But they sell in the masses. That's why these are pseudosciences. Physiology, psychology, sociology, and theology are not hard sciences mm -hmm. because they're made out of dopamine. They're, they're used for the opium of hedonism. And they create the suffering that they're supposedly trying to get rid of. Fascinating. It's an interesting one to think about. You know, I'm thinking about uh, coronavirus right now and the media and how often the media can amplify fear. Um, and you can see it in the music, like dun 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 dun. You know, live at six o'clock, da 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 da, and like the latest disaster story. And it seems like so much of our news sources and the, how we take in information is coded with fear strains and tones. Um, that manipulate and that actually exacerbate. Um, what do you see from that perspective, that perspective sociologically? Um, anything to comment on that piece? I don't normally watch media unless I'm on it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if I'm on it, I'm, I'm trying my best to share something that's grounded. Mm -hmm. But um, as Gandhi said, I, I don't pay much attention to that. It's distracting. Uh -huh. What it does is it, it feeds your subconscious mind and creates sensationalism. The media is designed for the mass market. Mm -hmm. It's designed for sensationalism, the amygdala, and extreme pleasure, extreme pain is what's going to be on there. You're not going to get objective data. That's boring. Mm -hmm. The truth, by the time the truth puts on its shoes, the fantasies have walked across the world, as they say. <laughs> right. The more ridiculous it is, the more people go on social media with it, as you see. And people are thinking, I want to get on social media and think, but they don't realize that the the more sensation you get, the probably the more ridiculous it is. Mm. So yes, they sensate. And so they grab your attention. Why? Because anything you infatuate with or resent occupies space and time in your mind and runs you. And if they want your mind, they have to sensate. They have to do fast, unexpected, challenging things because you have adaptation. So a monotone, repetitive story, people turn off. Right. They're not going to listen to it. <clears throat> but highly volatile sensations like the 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 Trump and Biden uh, right. uh, meeting the other day, you know, the the, the debate or whatever. Yeah. You know, people are going to be glued because they're going, "Oh my God, that's like that's crazy. These guys are like idiots or whatever." Uh -huh. So that sensates, mm -hmm. and that's exactly how you get massive people to pay attention. Mm -hmm. It depends on what you want. You have to ask yourself, "Where is your market? What do you want in life? Mm -hmm. What mastery?" Or do you want the masses? It's okay. They're all work. But where do you want to play in the game of life? Mm -hmm. If you want to be objective, you may transcend. Mm -hmm. They usually leave their lives more immortally. Mm. But the, the sensations are come and go. They're fleeting. Mm -hmm. I'll, 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 uh, I'm not, no, I would probably not be ideal to do that story. But I'll, but I'll it just is, say It that. is straight talk live. No. Well... <laughs> I, I was about to say that, uh, that we have Seneca, the Roman poet, said that you measure an individual by the most distant ends. Hmm. So the magnitude of space and time within one's innermost dominant thought will determine the level of conscious evolution they've obtained. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting is the moment you are infatuated with something, it occupies your mind. The moment you resent something, it occupies your mind. Right. The moment you're neutral, you transcend it. Mm -hmm. You occupy your mind. Hmm. You're present. Not extrinsic things, but intrinsic things. Hmm. I said when the, on The Secret, when the voice and the vision on the inside is greater than all your opinions on the outside, you mastered your life. A moment of mastery. Mm -hmm. A moment of transcendence. Every time you transcend a polarity, those are boundaries. And you, no matter what boundary you have in your life, you have a yearning to go beyond the boundary. Mm -hmm. So if I put you in a little box, you know, a three by three box, you'd feel claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. if I, and, and if I mm -hmm. gave you the opportunity to go in a six by six foot box, you feel relief temporarily, 
oh, finally. Mm-hmm. But within a short period of time, you'd feel claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. If I put you in a 12-foot box, you go, oh, what a relief. But eventually, you'd feel claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. You have a natural boundlessness mm-hmm. of the soul mm-hmm. that constantly wants to transcend the attachments of a boundary. Because anything you infatuate with is an attachment and a boundary. Mm-hmm. And they're all boundaries. So our yearning of our own soul calls us to keep going beyond our boundaries to an infinitude. A Flammarian diagram that uh, Bruno looked at in, out at infinity and realized that there's a vastness out there. No matter what we have, there's always something that's beyond that. The mystery and penetrate the next mystery and penetrate the next mystery. And the magnitude of space and time in our innermost dominant thought, how big a vision do we have in our life will determine our conscious evolution. That's what I've been interested in, conscious evolution. So the factor worker lives day to day. And in a small cubicle, they do their little duplicated monotonous job. Mm -hmm. The supervisor lives week to week. The lower management, month to month, upper management, mid-management, year to year, upper management, maybe decade to decade. Mm -hmm. Maybe the CEO may be thinking in terms of generation. The visionary uh, leader of the company may think in terms of a possibly a century, Mm -hmm. right? The sage may think in terms of millennium, but the soul will think in terms of eternity. Hmm. There's no boundary on it because there's no conditions on it. Hmm. So where do you want to play in the game? Now, the, 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 the factory worker down at the bottom, if he goes home and has sex with his wife and gets a BJ, um, people laugh about it for a day. They come in and they talk about it for a day. If the supervisor does it, they talk about it for a week. Hmm. If the CEO of it, they'll talk about it for possibly a century. <laughs> right. If Bill Gates, uh, Bill Clinton gets it, it's, it's, it's a century probably. Right. You know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So the magnitude of space and time that you are morally honored or dishonored mm. if it, it is dependent on the magnitude of the vision that you hold in life. And if you can't handle praise and reprimand and be a hero and a villain on a massive scale, you can't create a massive impact in the world. Mm-hmm. Because your own attachments to your own labels and your own mind that you're infatuated or resentful to, pride and shame, trap you. And you create your own fear. That's why we cover up our face with shame and we show off our face with pride. Because mm-hmm. we've created that in our own delusion because of our addiction to pride. Mm-hmm. And that's our fear of death. Our fear of death is the fear of loss of our pride. Because when we're feeling ashamed, we don't have a fear of death. We'll take our life. Ian Rand describes in the Fountainhead that when we're uh, altruistic, we'll sacrifice ourselves for others. When we're narcissistic, we'll sacrifice others for uh, ourselves. One creates a, a suicide, one creates a, a homicide. All the sides, the, uh, the suicides and homicides are byproducts of polarizations of mind. And they're predictable. Would you, and I want to remind the audience, please send in your questions. If you're tuning in live on Facebook, YouTube, or live on our Zoom, send in your questions now. Uh, we want to get those to Dr. Demartini. Um, and I just wanted to ask you really quickly, what, can you give us a personal example of when you've had, when you had fear hijack you for a moment or more than a moment, and you re- eventually realized that, and then you had to figure out a way to overcome that and move through it. What's an example in your life? Yeah, I had, um, I had a fear when I was going through a divorce many years ago. This is about 30 years ago. It was, it was, I could see my attachments easily. Mm-hmm. I was getting ready to do a program, which is one of my main programs per year that generates the most income that serves, that really allows me to let loose for 10 days, 14 hours a day, 144 hour program on the laws of the universe. Mm-hmm. So this is one that I, I kind of let loose on. Mm-hmm. If you can picture me. <laughs> and um, my former wife, who we had a mutual uh, agreement on the separation. And then a friend talked her into having a lawyer to go through the things. And when the lawyer came in, hell broke loose. Because uh-huh. he started thinking, well, he's got private bank accounts in foreign countries. He's got this. And tried to get her angst, mm-hmm. right? It's a, it's a gimmick they're doing to get more cash. Mm-hmm. So he attempted to stop me from having this program and wanted me to go and have a, um, a meeting in the middle of my seminar. <clears throat> and it really, it seemed illogical and irrational. And when, when things, are, things are really illogical and irrational, that can push my button, right? It's my, my illusion. Mm-hmm. 
so I, I said, well, look, you know, I'm the, the money that I'm making, half of it's going to her. So if you stop this, you're, you're, you just blocked your pay. This right. is stupid. Yeah. So I got on the phone with him and I said, you know, you're a real idiot. If, if you postpone this and give it a few days, uh, you're going to end up having more likelihood of getting paid. Right. You know, so that don't, don't cancel something because I got people from coming from different parts of the world and it's not fair to them. It's not fair to me. It's not fair to your, your client. It, you know, get real, dude. Mm-hmm. And I was really peed mm-hmm. at that because I'm now having to go through and reorganize a dates if that was to happen, mm-hmm. uh, refund money and reschedule it. And, and uh, so there was a fear of loss of money. There's a fear of loss of clients. There's a fear of, 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 of having to now go into a meeting and that, uh, a fear of loss of me getting to share what I wanted. Mm-hmm. All of my fears in many areas, socially, financially, business, um, probably health was impacted by it because of the frustration of having to now redo it and orient it. All of them surfaced. But I realized that in, now in this case, it turned out that I was able to have a comfort with this guy and talk some sense into him and explain to him. And I, when I put it in his values that he's going to limit, limit his, his income, right. he backed off quick. Because uh-huh. he was just doing it to get me to be reactive, right? Mm-hmm. To gain, give her power. And, and so now I'm going to want to negotiate differently. It was, a, it was a silly tactic. But I had fear because I had fantasies about all those things that I wanted would make me, me happier, my illusion. So yeah, those are, there's thousands of those that we face in our life. The second we get attached where it's there, it's gonna let us know that. So fear is never gonna go away. That's the idea that if somebody comes up to you and says, well, you know, I'm beyond all fear. I go, yeah, come on, get real, dude. That means you have no goals in your life at all. <laughs> you have nothing to you're just numb man mm. but your fear is guiding you it's a homeostatic mechanism guiding you to set real objectives that are authentic that are deeply meaningful to you mm. and that are guiding you so your fantasies and your phobias your phobias and your phobias are two poles and the mean between them is what meaning is so if you're infatuated with somebody and you can ask what are the downsides you just extracted meaning out of that yeah and if you're resentful and you extracted the upsides you just got meaning out of it it's the mean Mm -hmm. and so finding the meaning in life is simply the ability to ask questions that neutralize the mind's misperceptions the subjective biases back into objectivity Mm -hmm. and therefore finding the hidden order in the in the chaos the gaussian distribution of chaos and volatiles and and uh, perturbations of getting away from the mean have a bell curve, right, in the Gaussian distribution. And the center is the mean. And so we, we have probabilities in our life. If we study it, we have automatically probabilities that are taking us back to the mean. That's why nobody can stay happy and nobody can stay sad. They're all vacillating around, even though we're having misperceptions, but it's always teaching us how to get to the mean, yeah, to extract meaning out of our existence, our existential world, because that's where our essential self lives. So for you, just to make sure I understand that, to diffuse the fear in that situation, part of what helped is you were able to take action and you leaned into that and had that confrontation with that lawyer. And then did you do some work also around uh, looking at the the upsides of the whole situation? And that also helped diffuse it as well. Okay, this is a really, really, really powerful uh, idea here, if, you, if, if everybody can get it. Mm. Prioritization is one of the greatest things that we can do in life. Because if we can take and prioritize our action to neutralize our events. That's one practical application. The other is to prioritize our experience. And this most people don't think about. But let's say you're in a job that you don't love and you're having to do 20 things in a day that are not inspiring to you. The only reason is because you don't see how it's helping you fulfill what you you value most. That's it. So if you ask how specifically is doing this action helping you fulfill what you value most and link it to it so you see it on the way, not in the way, it's now helping you get your highest value where you're more objective and more neutral and you're not in angst again. Mm. So you have two choices. We only have control of our perceptions, decisions, and actions. If we can prioritize our actions, 
or we can prioritize our perceptions by linking whatever's happening to our highest values and have the decision which one do I do or both, this, that, both, or neither, you now have mastery. So I did both because I wasn't sure that I could get him on the phone and negotiate with him and, and get this change. And so I took, okay, if this does happen, how do I use it to my advantage? How do I mitigate the risk? How do I serve myself? Now I could do that. And if there was no way of changing that, that's how I would have approached it. Yeah. Okay. But because I prioritized the action, how do I educate him in his highest value by giving him in his highest value, the value of me keeping these dates. Mm -hmm. So I gave it in his value. This is where you're going to get your funds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you cut this off. She can't pay you fool. Right. Oh, okay. We'll change the date quick. <laughs> so communicating in his values, his highest value is what allowed that door to open. So I, to be resilient, I need to be able to take whatever's happening and link it to my highest values. How's it on the way? Not in the way that's mitigating the risk mm. and also prioritizing my action to get me to not even have to deal with it. Mm. And that one worked. So I didn't have to worry about the other one once I, I got it. Otherwise I would have had to put more energy into the linking. Okay, this is now my current reality because comparing your current reality to the way it was or the way you fantasizing it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But now getting grounded, now what's the current reality? And how do I use that to my greatest advantage? How is my current reality helping me fulfill my values? Right now in the coronavirus, that's the wisest way to do it. Mm -hmm. How is what's happening right now helping me fulfill what's most meaningful to me? Because sitting there and thinking, well, it used to be different isn't going to get you there because you're just going to be angry because it ain't the way it used to be right. and fantasizing about how it could be and should be and isn't going to get you there but actually saying what's actually the facts right now and how do i use these now to my greatest advantage to fulfill my, what's most meaningful to me that's mm -hmm. that's wise and then the fear goes away because mm -hmm. you just mitigated the risk because mm -hmm. you took away your fantasy that it's going to go back the way it was you know, the way you describe what you have, I was just thinking about real life events um, in my life and both in business, financial, um, even straight talk live. It, it, it was born out of what you've just described, which was the sort of neutralization or the reg the regulated self between Rick and I, when we said, right, we've been ill prepared, the world's ill prepared, what are we going to do about it? No point having an academic discussion for two hours with each other. And we're sort of twiddling our thumbs thinking, well, actually, I'm getting even getting more anxious thinking, oh, my God, so there's so much knowledge, but there's no action back to action. And then we took a decision to say, we're going to do this. And the, the perception of which was related to the fear. Should we do it? Should we not do it? Would, would Dr. D. Martini come on the show? We detached from that. We were like, you know, we, 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 we were agreed on a mission and a purpose that really mattered to us. And I think, um, and I think what the other point is when you're in a situation, which is tough, you're always trying to look at the, 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 the upside in the sense that you're saying, well, what can I do? What can I learn? How can I grow? Um, I've always found looking at people who uh, are in a more troubled situation helps you deal with the first part of uh, feeling sorry for yourself. You know, when people have it much worse, someone's in a six by six box. I'm actually in a 24 by 24, whatever it may be. It sometimes one forgets, especially in the Western world, because our tummies are full. We have abundance all around us. It's only when you travel out to another part of the world thinking, blimey, uh, you know, they don't even have food here. I have tons of it. Um, that context we often forget in times of fear. And I, I, I sometimes I find reminding ourselves of that context helps to deal with that fear and action. Some of the things that you've discussed today. Um, what a powerful one hour. And we could listen to you for hours, of course. And um, thank, thank you so much for once again, taking the time and effort and energy and sharing your personal stories around, you know, a personal event with your, with your previous wife and the divorce and, and also being candid and straight talking and, and being free with your language. It's, it's been epic. Um, Rick, do you want to close off? I know we're a little bit over, but, um, uh, you know, thank you again, doc, uh, Dr. Martini. Can I say one more thing? Just, to, please, just please. To, to really irritate people. Please. Oh yes. <laughs> double down. Let's double click on that. <laughs> the, the young boy who lives in the shack doesn't have less pleasure or pain than you. Wow. Nice. Pain and pleasure is conserved through time and space in all people because we have built in thermostats for both mm. i met a young boy we were sailing down not sailing but uh, rafting down a 
Urumbamba River in Peru. And we stopped off on a rocky little turning point on the river to take a break. And we saw a little boy in the woods that was naked. And so we had to go and explore this little boy. And we came across a, a, a little shack, kind of, not a shack, but a, a, a mix of lean-to of, of branches and just stuff and brush where people were living. And they're all naked. Didn't have any clothes. And the kids were playing with a stick and a, red, a little bitty mud ball. And, and playing with a mud ball. They rolled it up, made a ball, and they were playing with a stick, and they were playing game. And one of the guys from my thing gave him a coin. And they didn't want anybody to take a picture of him because they were frightened that you'd take their soul by taking a picture. Mm -hmm. And they gave him a coin. And he ran off, and he ran a mile and a half to show his friend this thing that he's never seen. Mm. And the pleasure of that coin to that kid mm. If I threw that coin at my son, he'd go, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it? Because mm -hmm. he has an expectation. So anybody who's been for a long period of time without sexual interactions sometimes can lower their standard to reset the thermostat <laughs> to have pleasure and pain. <laughs> so what happens is we automatically reset. At the next boundary, we now have a new pain. So don't ever assume, this is one of the biggest illusions that people do with their values. They project their values based on their own assumptions of what people are suffering instead of asking and making sure they really believe that they're suffering. So the thermostat of pain and pleasure have been shown and proven to be conserved through time and space. Don't buy into people's stories. Understand how physiology works or you'll buy into the illusion, which are strategies that people use in order to get what they want. Wow. That is a, that, that's, I don't know what to say after that. That's the best way to end the show. <laughs> that's deep. I appreciate you, Dr. Demartini. Uh, thank you so much again for coming on uh, again and sharing your wisdom, your unique perspectives that I know makes a difference to our audience. Uh, once again, where can people find out more about you and your work? Where should um, they go? If they just go to drdmartini.com or type in my name, it'll probably take you right to it. Um, there's a lot of stuff. I think my name's out there a bit, but drdmartini.com is probably the easiest way to get hold of me. You know, I, have a, I have a, sorry to break. I don't want to interrupt. I have a question. You're talking, you were just before the show, you are saying I'm working on some papers and research and books. Is there anything that you're about to publish that you can give us a bit of a, uh, a glimpse of that we should look forward to uh, books, research papers, anything along those lines? Well, right now I'm in about, the next two weeks, I will finish a 830-page textbook on uh, solar physics and the relationship between human consciousness in the solar system and the conservation of information and knowledge in the solar system relating to human consciousness on Earth. So it's a, it's a, it's a large um, two-volume text on that. Uh, so we'll be discussing about the conservation of information in black holes and solar systems how they're stored atomically, uh, how it relates to the brain, development of living organisms, lots of different things. So that is a new text, two-volume text that I'm finishing up. I also have another book that I've published that so far seven publishers have rejected dealing with grief because people think that that's a normal biological thing, but it's an option. And I've got a science on how to dissolve it. And um, so that will be right after this text is done and I present these programs on it. I will be probably uh, going back and finishing up that text and doing that an updated version and probably pu publishing it myself. But I'm constantly writing articles. I mean, constantly writing articles. Mm -hmm. That's just a, a daily thing mm -hmm. and constantly writing. So if you go on my website, you can go to media and you could spend the rest of your life. You'd have to be a Buddhist believing in reincarnation to be able to get through it all. <laughs> Amazing. Um, your output is incredible. Um, I have never really met someone quite like you, Dr. Demartini. Um, and if you also go to our straighttalk.live page, you'll see our speakers page where Dr. Demartini is featured in his profile amongst our other speakers as well. So thank you again for being on our show. Thank you. Uh, always a pleasure. And uh, just a quick preview for next week. Um, we are going to be speaking to um, Abdullahi Alim. And, and the, um, specifically on the role of young people in creating systemic reform. Um, so that's going to be a very fascinating topic for the youth out there uh, and people looking to the next generation for their leadership. So stay tuned. 
and stay straight talking out there, our straight talk livers. And thank you again, Dr. Demartini. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Over now. Bye.